Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? I love it. I love it. It's good to hear your enthusiasm this morning. Hey, it's no joke about that bag of candy, though. I don't know if you looked in our candy trough out there. We've got about four or five bags. And unless Jesus is going to work some sort of loaves and fishes things with Snickers and Milky Way, we're in trouble. And so if you wouldn't mind, if you will go out and buy a bag of candy or two and, uh, and get the good candy, too. You don't show up with, like, circus peanuts and wax lips and all that junk when I was a kid. I, you Name brand candy. We don't get people's choice candy. We get the name brand candy, bring it back. Uh, if you guys will bring it, that'd be awesome. Uh, if you can bring it uh, tomorrow or Tuesday, it'd be perfect. You just come to our back kitchen door there, ring the bell, and hand off your bags of goodness. Uh, that'll be great. Uh, and when you do that, what you're doing is we're purchasing some favor and opportunity with people in our community. That's what we're getting. So uh, it's an opportunity for us to talk about the Lord. So amen to that. If you got your Bible, Sandy, speaking about talking about the Lord, let's go to 1 Samuel today, 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24, as you're turning there, um, for those who are newer uh, or new with us today, just to catch you up to where we are, we've, we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel. Now, in 1 Samuel, what we've seen is the, the trajectory from a, a, a priest-slash-prophet-led country to a monarchy, to a king-led country. And so the first king ever in Israel, King Saul, has uh, stepped into authority. He was chosen by God, but shortly after getting there, just became a horrible person. And so uh, now God has removed the presence of his spirit from Saul. Saul is now being occasionally tormented by an evil spirit, and he has just become a wicked person. Now he knows already intuitively that David is going to take his kingdom from him. And Saul wants his son Jonathan to be next on the throne. And so Saul has committed himself to killing David at any expense, even to the expense of leading the country, uh, which is just crazy. And so last week, what we saw is Saul had raised up his army to pursue David and his men. So David has a number of people with him. Do you remember how many people are with him? He's got about 600 people with him right now. So 600 soldiers and uh, Saul brought his army out against them, however many that was. At the end of last week, what we saw was that Saul had split his army up. They were going around a mountain. Uh, David and his men were on the other side of a mountain. So Saul had split his army. They were going on both sides of the mountain to come in around and pinch uh, and, and capture David and his men. But as they're doing that, Saul gets word that the Philistines have invaded and the army has to go and fight them. And so it was one of those 11th hour moments that just reminds us that God's always watching us. He, he's going to show up for us. He doesn't show up in our timing. He shows up in his uh, and that great things can happen even in the midst of uh, a lot of fear. So David gets away, the men get away, and now verse, uh, or chapter 24. So here we are, uh, chapter 24, let me read for us verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. All right, so the Philistines have been dealt with, and now Saul has uh, returned to, to seek David out. And so he's being told David's in En Gedi. Now, one question I have is, who keeps telling on David? Like, who keeps, why would you do that? David's like the best guy. And everybody is like, they're, they're reporting him. They're trying to find favor. And I, I get it. They want to find favor with the king. So even though the king is a horrible person, they're trying to find favor and get into his good graces. So now they're, they're telling on David. And they say he's in the wilderness of Gedi. So I don't know what you picture 
when you picture the wilderness of En Gedi or the wilderness of Israel. But I can tell you exactly what it looks like because we've been there. Uh, if you'll pull up this picture here. Uh, so these pictures were taken by um, uh, Jack and Sean. They both took some of these pictures. So this is, this is En Gedi. <laughs> this is it. This is the wilderness of En Gedi. So if you pictured an arid, mountainous, uh, dry kind of region, you've pictured En Gedi. And that's the Dead Sea uh, back there so that you know exactly where you are. You're on the west bank uh, of the Dead Sea um, uh, in En Gedi. And so it, one of the comments that will be made here is that there are caves that they're hiding out uh, in in En Gedi. So here are caves in En Gedi. Uh, those caves are everywhere, carved in the side of the mountains. If you take a trip to Israel, which we'll try to do again as a church here in the next year or two, uh, we'll do that. But you'll see those caves. Now, you might be looking at that thinking, I mean, can you get up to those caves? Like, you can. You can climb up there, and you can get in those caves. Uh, but also, there's been some erosion over time, so maybe some aren't as accessible as they have been historically. Uh, but those caves are everywhere. And it is, it is quite possible that those are exact caves that David and his men hid in. It could be. So uh, we don't exactly know, but we do know that's the exact region where everybody was. So uh, Saul is out to get David. He's resumed his course, verse 10, or 2, verse 2. Then... Saul took 3,000 chosen men. So 3,000. So how many does David have? 600. So this is five times the amount of men, for those who are struggling with your math, five times the amount of men coming after him now. And it says here they're chosen men. Chosen men. Now we know beforehand that Saul had summoned his army, brought them after David. Chosen men. Does this mean like his special forces? Is, is that what he's selected his bed? Like I've come at you with everything. We weren't able to do it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my top soldiers, and we're going to come and track you down. So he's got his chosen men. They've uh, come out to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks, wherever that may be. That location is lost in time. Uh, verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. So now we're going to talk about something you didn't think we'd be talking about at church on Sunday morning. We're going to talk about going potty. So uh, Saul pulls aside. Now, the Hebrew term here is Saul paused to cover his legs. When you drop your pants to go to the bathroom, you have a foot warmer. And that's, that's what it's all about. He's covering his uh, feet. He's covering his legs. Um, and so he's gone now. It's just a polite way to say he's going number two is what he's doing. Uh, just to fill you in, you know, a woman might say, I have to go powder my nose. A guy might say, I need to go see a man about a horse. Uh, but whatever it is, you got to poop. That's what's going on. So that's what's going on with Saul. He pauses to go to the bathroom. Uh, let's finish the rest of this because it's interesting. Uh, so he goes there to relieve himself, to cover his legs. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. That's an awkward moment, right? <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's talk about that for just a second. Um, so we know David's got about 600 men with him. So you can seat in this room 400 plus. It's a little over 400 people can sit in this room. So if there's 600, you need like this room and again uh, to be 600 people. And that's packed pretty tight, actually, uh, if they were all like that in the cave. So this probably means it wasn't all 600, but it's David and a selection of his men. They weren't. All, can you imagine 600 people crammed in a cave watching a guy poop? I mean... And first of all, it would have never lasted either because, you know, somebody among 600 dudes is going to go, <clears throat> and as soon as he does that, everybody's going to lose it. And so this, that's not going to happen. Uh, so in order to maintain silence, um, that probably didn't happen like that. Uh, so they are hiding there, but they're all, uh, however many of them are there, they're there when all this uh, goes down. 
Uh, verse four. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. All right. So the guys come up to him like, hey, listen, the Lord has prophesied. Now, if you're a Bible student, one of the things you want to know is where did God prophesy that? Like, I would just love to know. And you can study all of 1 Samuel, and you're not going to find an exact quote like that for Saul. But what you will find is a number of times God has said to David, uh, like, I'm going to deliver this enemy into your hand. Like, you can, you can go do this. And so probably what his men are doing, because they've been with David through this whole thing. They're the men who have helped him do all this stuff. They're probably going, hey, this is just like the other times. You know, just like the other times where God says, I'm giving your enemy into your hand, go take him out. Like, this is one of those times, go take him out. And so um, David crawls up and he goes and he, he cuts off a, a bit of his garment. And so probably what has happened is Saul has probably, rather than just dropping his robe at his feet, which I don't know how you'd ever pull off cutting that off. I mean, at some point you got to be aware if somebody's crawling up near your feet while you're going to the bathroom. I think you'd notice that. So it's probably that Saul's disrobed, put his robe somewhere. David snuck over there, cut it off and, and got back to the, to the boys. Um, and then the rest of this uh, goes forward here. Let's pick up at verse five. <clears throat> and afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a sorner, corner of Saul's robe. So David is immediately remorseful. Now you and I, and even his men might say, David, like, dude, you're making too big a deal out of this. Like, you're remorseful because you cut off a corner of his robe. You realize this guy has tried to kill you. Uh, not only has he tried to kill you, he has already killed a ton of people trying to get to you. You feel bad about cutting some of his robe? Like, man, let's have some perspective here, David. So uh, I get it if they want to challenge him in that. But either way, David feels like he's sinned. And one of the things I think about us, and, and this is you know, for all of us, all of us from time to time sin. And immediately you feel remorse and immediately you feel regret, hopefully, maybe not always immediate, uh, but eventually you will. And the problem with remorse and regret is you cannot undo what caused it. And that is just the, the most frustrating thing, which means then this is why we're all delighted that we have Jesus. Uh, for those of us who've responded to his grace, because the activity of Christ covers our sin. It doesn't remove it doesn't remove the emotions that we experience, but it does remove the guilt of our sin, which uh, Jesus can do. And I'm always reminded of this, like when we talk about this. So uh, first of all, I'm glad you don't know my stuff and I don't know your stuff. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's leave the past in the past. But it is from time to time that I talk to people who've, who've done something they immediately regret. And, you know, I just have a couple of questions for them. One is, are you legitimately trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ as sufficient to cover all of your sin? That's the one thing I want to know. If yes, then we're already in a good trajectory. The second part is, do you legitimately want to follow him and, and, and be holy? And uh, if the second answer is yes as well, then, then great. Uh, then we've just got to move forward. There's no way to escape the feelings that you carry with you, uh, but we can move forward in what God has for you and, and go with there. So this is where David is. David's like, he's, he's immediately struck in the heart. Wish I hadn't done this thing. I cannot undo it, uh, but I need to deal with it. And he will deal with it before we're done here. Go to verse six. So he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. 
So Saul is literally anointed. He's the anointed one by Samuel. Samuel anointed him, and it was of God, just to say, like, the, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God is upon you in a unique way for this ministry. He is anointed by God. David believes that if God has elevated him to this position, then if it is God's will, God will remove him from the position. That is not for me to do. Now, keep in mind this. David has already been involved in a number of battles where he has not stayed his hand. He has done the things that you do in battle. He's killed a ton of men. And so it's not that he's like, I don't do it. You know, it's just like in this instance, it's different. This one's different. He is the one anointed by God to lead the country. I have to be careful. I don't want to step out of line. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. So you just got to get this in your head a little bit. All right, so you've just been in a cave doing your business, and you leave, and as you're leaving out of the same cave comes the man you've been pursuing to kill, who you realize was just in there with you, and then one by one out of the cave, you see these soldiers walk out after him. So you realize, I was just in there surrounded. Uh, let's forget the embarrassment factor for a second, um, that you could have been slaughtered while you were in there. So this this realization that Saul's going to have as all of this is taking place. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? So David for me is a model of humility. It's just a model of humility. Now, like, he's not a weak man. He is a strong man. He's a man's man. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's, he was general of the entire army of Israel at one point. He has slaughtered, I mean, tons of men. He's gone toe-to-toe with Goliath. I mean, like, he's a man's man. And yet, amazingly humble. And so, the one thing for us guys to remember is that you can have great strength and great humility, and they work together. Uh, David models that. And I would even say almost, it almost seems bizarre, his humility. Like, I I don't know that I would live it that way. Uh, And this whole thing about monarchies, like, the thing Saul's going to wrestle with here is uh, Saul gets it, David gets it, that the way the next uh, reign occurs in, um, in a monarchy is that you have to eliminate all of the, the predecessors uh, that were before you. Uh, Saul's going to talk about this with David later. But like monarchies transfer either by murdering people or by a succession through a son or you know some, um, some child that you've had. And this was that moment where David could have taken it in his hands to step up uh, and, and take control. And then David says, don't listen to those people that say I'm out to hurt you. And I would say this, who's saying David's out to kill people? Like they're telling on him, they're making up stuff about him. David's a great guy. And I like, I hate this for him because I hate it when my honor is impugned. Like I can deal with people talking, people talk about me, they talk about you, right? And so people are always talking about people. And, uh, and I don't mind it. People can say all sorts of things, but there's two areas where when you step on those, it really, really frustrates me. It pushes my buttons. Uh, one of them is if you impugn my character and you say, well, I think you're deceitful or I think you're a liar or something like that. Like I just, <laughs> I feel anger <laughs> like rising up within me. Like I, I don't think my integrity is an issue. My anger is about to be, uh, but my integrity is not an issue. Or if you challenge my love of the Lord, like that's another one where, again, anger will be my issue, but not, you know, don't challenge my love of the Lord. I, I do love the Lord though. I can still be a knucklehead. So, uh, and like here, David's like, hey, just to defend my own honor. People are saying this stuff about me. It's just not true. I want you to know it's not true. Uh, it goes on to verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. 
Now, this is funny to me, too, because he's got his boys there, right? And he's like, hey, Saul, Saul, stop. He's like, hey, I just want you to see I'm a righteous man. Some of these guys here wanted me to kill you. And can you imagine if you're one of the soldiers and you're like, like, dude, he's got like five times the men. Why would you tell him that? Like, so anyway, he just outs his own guys. Like some of these want to kill. I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. So he's like, I'm not going to do this thing. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So this is great. So he comes out, calls him my father. Now he's right. He is right to call him my father because David's married to Michael, who is uh, King Saul's daughter. And so they're married. Technically, Saul's his father-in-law. David would be the son-in-law. But there's probably more going on here because in that culture, uh, they would use familial terms to show honor or reverence and then submission. Um, but honestly, you probably do it in your own life. Uh, so when my kids are growing up, uh, that they have people in their lives that they would call, you know, auntie and uncle, uh, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, that were not actually familial relations. You probably have that in your own life as well. Uh, I've got a woman in my life that I call mom. Uh, I'll, I'll hug her uh, around the neck and I'll kiss her on the cheek and I'll call her mom and she'll call me son. Uh, she's, not my, she's not my mom. I got all sorts of people like that in my life. But um, it's this idea of showing honor to somebody that you value, uh, willingly showing a submissive role, and it induces this idea of, of family and connectability. So that that's what's going on there. But then Saul, for his sake, is probably having an odang kind of moment. An odang kind of moment for me is like when you're past a situation and you realize you could have been seriously injured or killed. Like some of you have had those, like, but you don't realize it till afterward. And then you're like, and then this rush, while well, you're not even in the moment anymore, this rush of, ah, ah, what could have happened to me comes upon you. So uh, this was illustrated for me back when I was in seminary. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who had been uh, a missionary in Africa, so way back in the day. And um, they were in a Jeep. They were driving down a dirt road in Africa. And uh, they saw a dead snake in the road. And one of the missionaries said, hey, pull over. I want to get my picture with the snake. And, uh, and so they pull over. And when they pull over, they see that it's a black mamba. So I don't know if you know what a black mamba is, but if you haven't Googled one lately, you should do so. One of the most deadly snakes in all of Africa. Africa is a big place. Uh, and so he picks it up by the tail, holds it up like this. They take his picture. Like he's like, you know, conqueror. And so after it's done, he takes the snake, throws it into the tree line. They get in the Jeep and they drive on. So this was back in the day when you had to put film in cameras and then develop it later. If you don't know what that is, young people, Google that. Um, but like they got the picture developed. Well, when he got the picture back a couple weeks later, he looked at it and he gasped. So as he was holding this and they were taking his picture, the snake had actually curled back around and was poised to strike his inner arm. And he didn't even see, he didn't even see, he's just sitting there holding this thing. And after it's done, it must've been right at that moment where they finish and he whips it and he almost died. And, and just this awareness like, ah, uh, yeah, I almost died literally as I was holding this snake that I thought was dead. And so Saul's going through this moment where he realizes, I almost died. I almost died. And here you are, you've, you've, uh, you've preserved my life, though I deserved it. Uh, verse 12. May the Lord judge, this is David again. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hands shall not be against you. All right, so now he's throwing down a little call for divine justice. <laughs> like I want, I'm asking the Lord to judge you because you know you're wicked, but I'm not going to judge you. And then he sh- kind of shares this, uh, this proverb. Now, it's not a real Bible proverb. It's just a thing they would say in their day. Now, we have things we say in our day, uh, like better late than never. You know, that would be a modern proverb, but it's not really, it's not a Bible thing. You know, beauty's only skin deep. It's not a Bible thing, but it's kind of a thing that we say. Uh, But my sum up would be this. Uh, What he's saying is, we know the way you act is the way you are, right? The way you act is the way, you can say whatever you want, but the way you act is the way you are. And he says, I just want you to judge between you and me. If the way you act is the way you are, then you know, if nothing else, then by this corner of robe that I hold in my hand, that I am a righteous person and you coming against me is wrong. That's what he's declaring to him. Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. All right, so he's, he's kind of saying, like, I'm a nobody from nowhere and I mean you no harm. Like, why are you wasting your time to try and kill somebody who has no, no vested interest in trying to get back at you. Like, I, I don't care. I'm not trying to do anything to you. Like, let me go. I'm a nobody. All right, verse 16. Now Saul's going to respond. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. All right, so he, he responds to my son, which is, you know, David calls him my father. He responds with my son, the familial thing or the submission and honor thing. Uh, And then it says he lifted up his voice and he wept. Now, listen, I get that, you know, different culture, different time. Maybe those early Hebrews, much more emotional as a group of people. Uh, But what it really reminds me of is that Saul is emotionally unstable. That's, That's really what's going on here. This guy is not right. Now, also, to be fair, he almost got bit by a black mamba. So, you know, he's got a lot going on right now. And he just pooped in front of a lot of people. So that's also weird. So whatever he's got going on, he's wrestling with that. It's coming out in tears. I can kind of get some of that. All right. Verse 17. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. So this is interesting too. So he gets, the Lord did this. Like God's on your side right now. He's not on my side. He put me in your hands. And it is really hard to return good when you've received evil. Like that's the truth for all of us. It's really hard to return good when you've received evil. We're gonna talk more about that before this day is out. Um, And two, Saul has just been shown up. And one of the most frustrating and humiliating things, which I bet God has done to you probably multiple times, is has exposed your foolishness or your pride or your wicked heart in the presence of somebody else by their activity. So you've had a way you were going to act or you were acting and somebody responded to you the opposite of what they should, where they were genuinely kind or genuinely forgiving or genuinely loving or genuinely courageous. And it just revealed how selfish and cruel and whatever you were and you were, you were exposed publicly. I know God does that from time to time. Um, and this is one of those moments where Saul has just been shamed by his own activity, standing there with all of his men, hunting down this guy who is one of the most righteous men in all of Israel. So he's been embarrassed publicly. Verse 19, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? 
So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So now this is an appeal to the historical way monarchies would work. So if you took over the throne, if you were now the king or the queen of a country, the very first thing you do is you murder all of the previous family. Uh, It's just what you do because if you leave any young boy or grandson alive, they're going to rise up and at some point feel like you're sitting on their father's throne, which rightfully should be theirs. And they won't be alone. There will be a group of people who will be speaking into their ear like, that should be your throne. And if you want it back, there's a group of us that'll go with you. Like this whole thing. So you've, it sounds cruel. You got to wipe everybody out. That's the only way you're going to make it work. Um, but, and actually, I love this too. Saul is basically saying to David, David, when you become king, will you please not be like me? <laughs> will you please be who you are? You be good and kind and preserve my family. Uh, because I wouldn't do I'd wipe you all out. But like, if you will just be different from me, I'd appreciate that. Verse 22. And David swore this to Saul, because of course this is who David is. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, at least it seems like Saul finally gets it, and he'll stop pursuing David to kill him. Unless you've read the rest of the book. (laughs) And you know, this lesson lasts for about 10 seconds, and then he's right back at it again. But for now, having been embarrassed, he kind of gives up on the the pursuit of David. Um, so that's kind of where we are in the story, but let's, let's pause for a moment because what I re- want to really focus on today is I want to focus on the lessons learned section that I've been trying to introduce. When we read Old Testament passages, I do think it's appropriate to stop and say, all right, in this passage, where's Jesus in this passage? Does he show up? Or as a follower of Jesus, what are elements of what I'm seeing here that Jesus has instructed in the New Testament uh, or New Testament writers have instructed that I need to learn and grow from? And so today you're going to get out of this passage both a lesson and a not lesson. <laughs> a lesson and a not lesson. It's going to make sense when we get there. Let's start with the lesson part. Um, one of the comments I made is returning good for evil is really hard for us. It just is. Um, I got a chance this last week to, to bump into Dr. Jen Noonan. So uh, we have, we're fortunate. We have two Old Testament professors, at least. There may be more. But two that come here that I know of. Uh, doctors Ben and Jen Noonan. Noonan. And it's fun because their names rhyme, which I think is phonetically pleasing. Uh, but they're great people, and it's fun to talk about the Old Testament with people who understand Hebrew. Um, and so she was out in our lobby this last week, because she works with a school that's on our campus. And, um, and while I was talking to her, I said, hey, this week, uh, 1 Samuel 24, do you got a second to talk about it? And she's like, sure. So she whips out her Bible, and we start talking about it. And uh, it was just fun. And I asked her, I said, out of all this going on here, like, what, for as, as a New Testament Christian, what are you pulling out of this passage? And she said, oh, it's, it's turn the other cheek. It's clearly turn the other cheek. And so I want you to engage that passage as well. So if you have your Bibles handy, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to go to verse 38. So go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. I'll give you just a moment to get there. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. This is what we read. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right, so here you are in the midst of these, uh, this slap, this lawsuit, uh, this impressment is what it's called when a, a soldier would make you do things for them, uh, this idea of lending. So all of these are offenses that you could suffer where Jesus is demanding a counterintuitive response. Now, I know when you look at this, immediately you're going to be like, well, what about, but what if, and I'm, honestly, if I'm one of his disciples, like I'm going to be talking to him later, like going, Jesus, you can't say that. Like there's all sorts of other things that need to be taken into account than you just say, if you just say that, and I, I feel like Jesus would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I said it that way on purpose. Like, if you're sitting here having a reaction to that, yeah, but what, what? Like, that's why he said it that way. It's supposed to provoke a response from you. You should be emotionally challenged by this. And I, I say this because you've got all sorts of situations immediately come to your mind. But like, what if, what if? And I actually thought as I was putting the sermon together, like, you know what I should do is I should talk about some of these. And then I thought, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't. He just aired it and let it kind of, kind of breathe a little bit. So let me just say this. Before you get to the what ifs and the buts and the what if, stop for a second. Let this live a little bit in your heart. And then I would ask, is the Holy Spirit bringing somebody to your mind right now where he wants you to learn this lesson? Is there somebody in your life right now that has offended you and you have thought, as soon as I get the chance, or maybe even you're conspiring right now that I am going to take it to them and I'm going to say, wait, wait, wait. What if the Lord has a different plan? Which he goes on to explain if you continue in the passage. Go to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, <laughs> you, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you want some objections. I have all sorts of objections to this, and I think Jesus would stop me. And he'd say, you really struggle to love your enemies, right? And I would say, yes, absolutely, I do. And then I think he might say, have you ever thought about God's love of you? That you were his enemy until he chose, through his activity, to offer you a chance at forgiveness. He's only asking us to do the very same thing that he has modeled for us in the way he has treated us. And so that is supposed to be the convicting part of this. And so let your... But what ifs, just hold for a second and be reminded that Jesus calls us to a radical kind of love and grace that is really hard for us to embrace. And when you get to the point where you're like, I don't think I can do that. I just think there's some people in my life that have offended me so greatly. I just don't think I can do that. I was like, okay, hold on. This is the great thing about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is the very person of God who indwells his people meaning that every Christian legitimately has the supernatural power of God within them. In your flesh, there's no way that you can love and forgive and extend grace like this. But if you'll allow the person of the Holy Spirit to work in and through you, you will have the power to do this. 
You've just got to submit to him. You've got to yield to him. So this is the lesson. Now let's talk about the not lesson that's in this passage. All right. David makes a comment in here that he is not going to go against Saul. He's not going to raise his hand against Saul. That's what he says. Because God has chosen him and he's anointed him. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this uh, growing up in the church. Um, Growing up in the church, did you ever hear hear a comment made like, um, you know, like, hey, don't challenge the pastor. Don't resist the pastor or the spiritual leadership of this church because who are we to raise our hand against the Lord's anointed? Anybody ever hear something like that in a church? (laughs) A lot of people heard that. All right. Um, Before I go forward, I do want to pause and give a little commercial for a friend of mine. So, all right. uh, There's this book called Urban Legends of the Old Testament. Urban Legends uh, of the Old Testament. Now, this was written by a friend and church member who is actually in this room right now, uh, Dr. David Croto. Uh, This one, I think he co-wrote with uh, Gary Yates. Uh, He did two of these. He did um, Urban Legends of the Old Testament, Urban Legends of the New Testament. Both are great reads. And what they are is they tackle things that that you and I might think like the Bible teaches this, and a lot of people think the Bible teaches this, and we're wrong. <laughs> it doesn't teach that. It's, it's just a common belief that we've come to an urban legend. And so he does that. And David reminded me as we were coming into this. He said, now, don't forget, there's some chapters on 1 Samuel in there. And there are. And uh, I was informed by reading one of those in regard to this. It was great. Um, before we go into talk about what the Bible actually says and what it means and what urban legends talks about, um, I want to bring up a verse that maybe you've read. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so this is a reference to spiritual authority. In all of our lives, we all have spiritual authority in our lives. And um, what this says to us is that when spiritual authority speaks to us, we should submit to them. Now, I know a lot of us get caught up in reading the first part, but I want to let you know that those who are uh, in spiritual positions of authority read the second part, where you're reading the obey your leaders and submit to them and trying to wrestle with what does that mean. Uh, They're reading the last part as those who will have to give an account. Like literally when there's a spiritual authority functioning in some area of the church today, um, they're wrestling with the fact that when I stand before God, I answer not just for me and my family and how I led my family, but I answer for y'all. Like, how did I lead y'all? How did I, how did I influence, push, encourage, challenge? Like, so there's this thing on us that is like of a higher account. Uh, and I was reminded of this, uh, in the book of James, James chapter three, verse one, which this was beat into me back in seminary. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, after the first service, it was fun. Uh, a community group leader came up to me he said, I get that James 3.1 is for you. Is James 3.1 for me as a community group leader? And I was like, oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You're being held to account. You better know what you're teaching and teach it well. And he was like, dang. I was like, yeah, feel the weight of responsibility. Uh, good stuff. Um, all right, so then, it, does this mean then that we can't ever challenge or resist our spiritual leaders? Okay, just, just checking, just checking here. Let's, let's, let's talk about this a little bit, and maybe there are some differences between what was going on in 1 Samuel and what's going on here. Let's talk about some of those differences. One, Saul and David are anointed kings with God's special favor. They're anointed kings over all of Israel. Your pastor's not. Sometimes he may think he is, but he's is, he is not, uh, nor are your other staff members. They're just, they're just servants in the church. Uh, next, the context is in regard to Israel's monarchy, not the local church. 
All right, completely different context. Uh, next, lifting your hand against uh, was actually a reference to killing someone, not just disagreeing with them. So when he says, I won't lift my hand, he says, I'm not going to take his life. That's not my role. So if you say, well, I don't think we're supposed to lift our hand against you, and you mean don't kill your pastor, I'll actually amen that. I'm with you on that 100%. 100%. Uh, just send me a nasty email and leave the church. It's much easier. Uh, next is... Uh, you know, confronting, <laughs> confronting a leader is actually a biblical thing. Uh, just as Samuel would confront Saul or Nathan confront David or Paul confront Peter or Jesus confront all of us. I mean, that's a very biblical thing. And we're actually commanded in scripture to confront false teachers. Uh, so that's something we're all supposed to do, church leaders especially. And I would say too, if church leaders aren't occasionally challenged at some point, then we all may suffer some form of spiritual abuse where they will use their authority in an unrighteous way to affect us, our church, or our community. All right, so then let's go back to Hebrews 13, 17. What do I do with Hebrews 13, 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So one thing, just as a pastor, as a representative of all my uh, spiritual brothers and sisters who are in authority over other people, um, like, this is really a hard role. Because the part I think that, that we're talking about in Hebrews is when we have to confront somebody or challenge somebody and say to them, hey, I've noticed something in your life or I want to push on something. I want, to, I want to encourage you to not do something or I think you need to repent of something. Can I just tell you, that is a joyless process for both of us. Um, that's not fun to do. Uh, nobody likes that. Do you know, I don't get paid extra to do that. If I, if I come up to you and rebuke you, I don't go back and some elder hands me a 10. Like, it doesn't work that way. Like, I hate it. You hate it. None of us are happy about it. So don't get grumpy. That's why it says, let me do this with joy, not with groaning. It's hard enough as it is. But here, let me tell you my story uh, as I go through this. So over the years, I know you may not believe this, I was a pretty rebellious young man. And, uh, and I was challenged a lot and have been over the years still occasionally to this day. And I hate it. I hate it every time. And this little, this, this, this really infantile part of me, when somebody challenged me, is, is like, it immediately wants to push back and be like, oh, you're stupid. I don't, you know, like, I just want to push back. And, uh, and then a lot of times I'll get out of those situations. And then when I leave, it's like the spirit speaks to me. It's like, you know, they were right. And you're like, I know, I hate it. And then I got to go back and repent for the conversation we just had. So, you know, it's all this stuff. So this is what I would say. If, if a leader challenges you, somebody in spiritual authority over your life challenges you and it rebukes or you need to change or I think this in your life, even if you disagree, at least in the moment, if I could just encourage you, swallow your words in the moment, swallow your pride in the moment, embrace this humility modeled by David, encouraged by Jesus, just embrace this humility and for a moment just go, let me think about what you said. You don't have to yay, nay, unless, unless you just know, <laughs> yeah, you're right, I need to do that. But just pause for a moment, let me think about what you said and, and I'll respond to you later. That's a very safe response. Then you can pull back, do some business with God, find out where you're at, and then process it in maybe uh, a more healthy way. So that's what I think we do with that. It's not a license, uh, I don't think, for spiritual leaders uh, to just go around and hammer everybody. But when you have a moment with that spiritual leader who you know loves you, and they're only doing this because they care about you and they care about your, your soul, uh, then maybe we just submit to that and listen to them. Uh, I still do it to this day uh, with those who speak in authority over me. So I encourage you to do the same. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning for the privilege of studying your word and for the reminder too that the Old Testament is not some old book that we just forget and move on. 
that the consistency of the character of both you, our Father, and your people is really similar through all the ages. You want humble people who love you and prioritize their relationship with you above all other things. That's what David was trying to do. That's what we want to do. And that's what Jesus challenged us to do. Lord, it is hard to forgive. It is hard to love those people who are working against us, but you have called us to. So would you please empower us with your spirit to live a life like others can't imagine, but will bless us richly in your holy name. Amen.